Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy. We are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And today, it's a special episode coming to you before a live audience at the iconic Manuel's Tavern. If you're just listening to us for the first time, welcome. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the coolest experience in the world, seeing so many of our listeners here live in a sold out, packed crowd at Manuel's Tavern. This is amazing. Thank you guys so much for showing up. Yes, I know. Absolutely. If you listen to Politically Georgia, you may often hear one of our two dogs or one of our four children um, or me complaining about my laundry or any of the other things typically that are semi-occupying our time. So to be here in front of the people who actually listen to it is really, it's just amazing. We cannot thank y'all enough for coming out and for being subscribers to the AJC because we couldn't do what we do without y'all doing what you do. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up on today's episode, we have a very, very special guest. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens is here live to speak with us. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. And we are two of the political insiders at the AJC. We're also here to welcome a very special guest. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens is in the crowd today. Thanks yes. Hi, welcome. Good to be here. This is great. This is like improv. <laughs> <laughs> You can hold your jokes for the end, yes. sir. <laughs> as long as they're about laundry. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, well, Mayor Dickens, thank you so much for joining us on our inaugural um, live edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. We want to start off with a question about politics, because we know it's something you know a little bit about. And we're going to ask you about a political um, event that I know Atlantans are trying to bring here, including you. Give us an update on what's happening with bringing the DNC here to Atlanta. Oh my goodness, this is a, a, a big goal of mine, is to bring the DNC to Atlanta in 2024. Um, Atlanta played a huge role, Georgia played a huge role in the 2020 election, and we wanna make sure that the Democratic National Convention chooses us over the other three cities, so they made it down to the last uh, four, which is uh, Atlanta, Houston, Chicago, and New York. And you know how we feel about the rest of them. So we want it here. Uh, we love them, but 
we want to be the ones who win this uh, convention. They, they've come. They've done their site selections. We put on a good show for them. We showed them how we would host a convention, how we would make sure that we are activating all of the spaces around the convention center, around State Farm Arena, all the hotel rooms, plus uh, Centennial Olympic Park will be open for uh, the, the public to be able to go, not just delegates. And we have a pretty affordable uh, hotel rate, and, and we have the world's busiest airport that people can get in and out of. They're telling me that we're in the top two, and they're saying it's between us and Chicago. So any shade you can throw on Chicago over the next <laughs> <laughs> two months and not make them you know, know that it's us that's throwing the shade, uh, you'll help me out a whole lot and help us get this convention. And it's an important thing for the Democratic National Convention. to. And what I'm saying to them is when you invest in Georgia – Good things happen for Democrats. When you invest in Georgia, you end up with, you know, uh, Biden being president who won by, you know, 11,000 votes. And a lot of those 11,000 votes happened at State Farm Arena, which was the largest voting precinct in the nation. And Donald Trump is still looking for those votes right now. (laughs) So tell us about the behind the scenes of trying to convince White House officials, Democratic officials, because I know you were up with President Biden just a few weeks ago to celebrate the World Series. You were there to celebrate, but you're also you know, talking to folks. You're, you're also selling Atlanta while you're there. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you that that's a part of the job I had not even thought about. I'm such a technocrat as an engineer. I'm like, I go in the job, I do the work, and we try to solve the problems of the city. And then people say, well, when you're in D.C., you got to check all these boxes. you got to meet this person, this person, this group, this group. you got to make sure you continue to be the ambassador for the city. Well, you know, the Braves won, so I'm up there for the Braves thing, uh, the big commendation that the White House gives you for winning the World Series, which is going to happen again. Um, and, yep. Yeah, yeah, today, you know, we just practice. So, <laughs> then, you know, but I get up there and I do want to. I talk to Biden. I talk to Keisha Lance Bottoms, the former mayor who is also representing the White House. And I talk to White House officials and I tell them, you know, please select Atlanta. And this, the, you know, the technical aspects we've won. I think we we've shown them that we can do it. Now it's the politics. It's the whisper campaign. It's the we want it in the South. Um, Chicago has a governor uh, who's very wealthy, and he's like, I'll fund the whole thing. And the mayor of Atlanta can't fund your meals right now. You know, so so there's a big difference between what we're saying, we're going to do it the grassroots way. We're going to raise money from Democrats. We're going to put the, together some packages and that's how we're going to get there. We've done it before. We did the Olympics that way with, with business community and residents and we'll do you know the DNC the same way. We've never not raised the money for any major event. So that's the kind of conversations I've had. Are there private fundment, funding commitments already lined up? Yeah, there's 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 a substantial amount of private funding from, um, from individuals Individual donors that are you know high net worth individuals around Georgia, around the South, around Atlanta, and then there's some corporate dollars that are really interested in making sure we have that at convention. And whose arms are you having to twist? Who makes the final call? So the final call will be from President Biden. Um, that that's where it all ends. And so you're you know we look at his circle of influence from um, Vice President Harris to you know the various uh, campaign managers that he has and the advisors he has. Um, his friends and allies, of course, and, and again, I can't under, understate um, our great, uh, you know, former mayor Keisha Lance Baum. She sits like within yards of the president's office. Um, so I, when I went to the White House, I was like, Keisha, let me see your office, you know. <laughs> and then she's like, You want to come see it? Man? Yeah. I went, I went walking through her office. She was happy to show it to me, and um, and I was like, Is Biden over there, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, uh, you know, you just try to make sure you stay present. And, 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 and he mentioned my name when the brain's there. And so just knowing that Atlanta has good things and it didn't hurt. And so when things happen, like Money Magazine says that Atlanta is the best city in the United States to live. When they do that, we send them cool things with DNC logos all over it. We put together creatives that says, don't you want the convention to be in the best place? So we have a team that's together that's just pumping them with Atlanta, Atlanta, Atlanta. One last question about the DNC. What would it mean for the city of Atlanta if it gets this convention? Yeah, it once again solidifies that we are a, a, an important political state that Georgia matters, that it's not just red, uh, and that's how it's gonna stay. It could be blue, it could be purple, um, blue or red, it could swing, so it matters, which means that you have to come here and communicate to Georgians. We don't want people writing us off. When they write you off, they don't make the investments that they need to to occupy your attention, to um, cater to your needs. So we want to be uh, a state that has influence, and so when the DNC makes an investment here, uh, like the convention and all these, you know, national figures will be here. Not only will they, you know, show that, you know, Georgia, Atlanta's on the map politically, but they'll want to host other events here, various conventions that are not even Democratic national conventions, but other things. And you know that there'll be all kinds of, um, you know, uh, sponsors that will come and they'll say, okay, I see Atlanta as a place I can invest an innovation hub or a, a, a headquarters or a regional office and those type of things. So um, 1988 was the last time we had the convention here and I think we're due to have another one. Okay, so that's, the, that's one of the jobs you're working on. Um, one of the first things you had to deal with after you got elected was the already kind of galloping effort to create a new Buckhead City. And we heard from Speaker David Ralston, who is a Republican, that at seven o'clock the morning after your election, his phone rang and it was you. Tell us about how you approached the Buckhead City movement and tell us where you see it right now, because we know that they're going to come back with another bill next session. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's important to me that all of Atlanta uh, stays whole, that when I say one city with one bright future, uh, this comes from my heart. This comes from a place of me being born and raised in Atlanta. You know, my neighborhood that I grew up in and the neighborhood I live in now were annexed around the same year that Buckhead was annexed into the city in the 50s. So modern Atlanta looks like what we have right here. Um, you know, and so when we grow together, we gotta stay together. And just cause recent times have made people feel like, hey, you know, we, we deserve something better or um, we're not happy with what has happened at Linux or this thing, that, that thing happened. Um, and then the political lens has changed. Um, you know, this, 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 you know, Republican versus Democrat thing. I saw it as, you know, I'm now the mayor and I get to share with people who I've been my whole life as inclusive. Um, I hate, I, I hate it not I mean, whenever I'm excluded, I, I really, you know, feel feel uh, feel left out. I feel, you know, unseen. And so I don't want anybody ever to feel like that. So I'm being as inclusive as possible. So, you know, Speaker Rawson, I called him seven in the morning. You know, Jeff Duncan called him seven in the morning. You know, um, same same with uh, Kemp. And they all were like, wow, thank you. It's good to hear from you. Congratulations, Mayor. You're going to be good. You're going to be a good mayor. And and then they said, you know, let's sign up. Let's set a meeting. So not only we, we had a phone call, 
and we came back with a meeting. And each one of them had their thoughts and their issues, and I wrote them down, and I said, okay, I can tackle that. That actually is a ghost that's not real. Um, you know, you guys have talked to yourselves enough to create a ghost, and that's not real. So let me go ahead on and show you that that's a ghost, and let's deal with what's real. And that's part of politics. That's part of it. People are walking around with ideas that we're going to do this in Buckhead. We were, we were not about that. And then I say, no, that's never come out of my mouth. Um, you know, so there were some things that we had to do. Crime, had to make sure garbage was picked up on time each week, had to make sure, you know, we, we, we serviced the you know, potholes that we picked up the phone that we had, people at City Hall actually working, all those things, and, and then we hired good people. And now they see it, and what went from, it was about 65% of the people in Buckhead said they would vote to have a new city. Now that's turned completely the other way. We're up in the high 60s for people that want to stay in the city of Atlanta if they were a bucket. Yeah. And the state recognized that, and the state said, we don't want to deal, deal with that. Um, that would be the first time ever that they de-annexed a place, allowed a de-annexation. And of course, when those de-annexations happen, I mean, if it was to happen, it would be the, you know, the more affluent financially part of the city saying we want to be separated. That doesn't sit well. I have, a, I have a quick side question before I get to my real question, but um, back to back, Lieutenant Governor Duncan and then Speaker Ralston both nixed this idea. I texted you saying this was news. You pretended to be, it seemed like you were shocked by the news, but did you actually already know? Well, I... Um, I've just always been curious. No, here's the honest moment. I don't... I, I just keep working until it's actually... The ink is dry. So I didn't take... You know, you get off the phone with them and they say stuff like, you know, Mayor, you know, you, you've come up here. We, you, you did those 400 steps you talked about. I walked across the street every single week, sometimes twice in a day, um, to go across to the Gold Dome. You did. I did. Okay, that, that is relevant because there has long been a tension between the Capitol and the mayor's office about who would walk across the street yeah. to go to the yep. other person's office. So you have been going to the Capitol. Yes, I can, okay. I can, you know, that the Capitol is a maze. It's a crazy place, but I walked over there enough that I can say I know where the governor's office is. I know where the lieutenant governor's office is. I know where the speaker's office is. I know each one of their admins. That's, and I sit out there like everybody else. I sit in the waiting room, wait for my time. Um, humbly asked them for an opportunity to speak. They, they, you know, of course they, you know, they allow it, but at the same time, I, I, I treat their house like it's their house. And then when they come over here, you know, they, they, you know, the lieutenant governor sat in my office. We've taken, you know, a good time to meet. You know, I sat with the folks that were a part of the Buckhead City Bill, and I've done that in their office and in my office. And we sat down and we said, now. What I heard you say on TV was, this was an issue, this was an issue, this is an issue. And now, this is no longer an issue, this is no longer an issue, this is no longer an issue, so what you got left? <laughs> and they'll say, um, well, this guy said this thing, this certain guy that likes to say certain things. I said, well, you know, that's a, again, that's a ghost, that's not real. Um, and they'll say, okay, let me follow back up, let me go back over here. And they call me back and they'll say, yeah, that's not real. I say, are you with, are you okay with giving me a year to prove this? And they gave me, a, and they said, I'll give you a year, but I didn't know for sure until they actually did it and you texted me like you've texted me to you you keep texting me things that i that, that now i know is real you breaking know, news breaking news <laughs> um well mayor my, my main question was you talk about working with republican lieutenant governor jeff duncan republican speaker david ralston republican governor brian kemp we know that nathan deal had a, had this fabled friendship with your former one of your predecessors kasim reed yeah. we know that kemp did not have this great relationship with your other predecessor keisha lance bottoms 
How do you navigate these relationships at a time when Georgia is as polarized, as divided as ever, right before a midterm election? Yeah, it's tough. And I was um, front seat watching both of those because I was on city council when Kasim was there for his second term. And I was on city council the entire time of Keisha's term, Keisha Lance Bottoms. So I watched how they dealt with each other differently. And, you know, Kasim did come from, you know, the state house. He worked, he was at the state house and he was at the state senate. So he knew how that, how, how they horse traded. He knew, you know, who needed what and all these things. Um, it, I have a great uh, intergovernmental affairs person, uh, Kenyatta Mitchell. She takes me over there. She helps me understand. And it's a confusing place. If you don't have someone that's going to hold your hands, have the same you know, you know, mentality, and I, set, and I set clear objectives and clear goals, I mean, that comes from my business background. If you, don't, you know, if you don't measure it, it doesn't get met. So I'm like, this is our objective. This is what we're trying to do. So if you're lining me up a meeting, I'm going in there, and I'm trying to get these things done by the end of that meeting. And she's like, got it. And she clearly you know, drives me to that success. But it's a confusing place. I didn't know that. I mean, you could, the state, like the city council, you meet on one week in a committee, and then the next week you meet as a full council and you vote and things happen. And I'll be like, okay, good. We got that thing uh, nailed out of this thing. She's like, no, no, no. Any day they can do this to your bill. At the last minute. At the last minute. And I said, well, it's not, it's this, no. They can add, that language can go in a bill about, you know, food. Like, wait a minute, how can Buckhead City be in a bill about food? Like, well, we can write it in there some kind of way. So uh, I say all, say all that to say um, <laughs> that I know I was not the most knowledgeable about state, um, you know, all those various minutiae details of how they operate. So I went in there clear-minded what my objectives on behalf of the citizens of Atlanta were and knowing that I needed, a, you know, a, a shepherd to get me through those processes. And, you know, and then our, you know, team would go to work. And then these guys started calling me and texting me various, you know, they wanted my number and wanted to talk to me and whenever they had it. And they would, I would, I would just pick up the phone and talk to any, you know, state rep, state senator. Um, of course, our federal partners were all listening. You know, Nakima Williams, um, Ossoff, and Warnock, all of those folks were really making sure that we were heard uh, nationally that if this was to happen, think about the precedent it was set across the nation. Um, let's change gears a little bit to a challenge that I know your office is currently dealing with, and that's the Atlanta Medical Center and news that it is going to close. Our information was that you had not even been given a heads up that that would happen. Um, how is that possible that they would not <laughs> tell you all that? Um, and what effect do you think that's going to have? I know some steps have been taken to try and um, ameliorate the immediate effects, but what do you think that means for the city right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, what's crazy is I used to like Wellstar. <laughs> I used to like Wellstar um, as an organization. I was happy when they came to the city to take over um, Georgia Baptist from tenant properties. And I was there at their grand opening. I spoke at their grand opening, excitedly saying that a big operator with a, you know, a network would be great for this population that goes to this hospital. And I thought they would upgrade the hospital to be a hospital of choice. You know, the goal is that we shouldn't have the 
indigent care hospital that looks like the indigent, you know, the, the, we should have the hospital be a hospital that all of us would want to go to and that they also have provisions for people who can't pay. That's what quality, fair, affordable health care should look like. And I thought they were going to be providing that. And so then I get a call like 10, 30, 11 saying, hey, Mayor, can we talk? I'm like, yeah, what, you know, uh, give me about 30 minutes. I get out of this thing. I call them 1130. What's going on? We got some news um, around after lunch. We're going to let our employees know that in 60 days we're going to shut down. So I got the news about 1130. The employees were going to get the news after lunch or during lunch or something like that, that 60 days are going to. And then and I found out that the governor got the news maybe the night before, or not much more than my time. Um, and that hurt that they would not tell us. And so they say from business reasons, you know, you don't want to tell it. And then everybody just start walking out the door. I said, well, the minute you announced it, everybody walked out the door anyway. They started looking for other jobs. But you're not you're not a McDonald's that just closes and we figure out where else we're going to eat. You're a level one trauma center. So there's a, a, a substantial responsibility to humanity that you have to provide. And you just didn't do that. And so that made me, you know, really unhappy with them as an organization. It makes me, you know, sad for what that means. I'll give you one, you know, somebody was in an incident and they took their friends to the place and they're not receiving people for that service anymore. And, you know, October 15th, they're going to stop their um, ER. So it's not November 1st. October 15th, which is tomorrow or so, or Friday, they're stopping ER. And they've stopped other things. Ambulance services stopped October 1st. So, you know, Grady, thankfully, is resilient. You know, Emory, um, Piedmont, and they're picking up some of the slack. But, but you know, no doubt that this is a... Uh, this is hard to deal with. So today I had a huge meeting. Four hours I sat with uh, everybody from Grady, Morehouse School of Medicine, Emory, Piedmont, and the other providers um, that, uh, that are in this network. And we mapped out what our communication plan is, who's going to take over which services um, in the short term, and then what our goal is for an ultimate care network for people um, across the metro region, particularly in Atlanta and DeKalb. How do we make sure that, what's the, where do we, where do we want to go from here? And I spent four hours with them. And then I'm going to spend on Thursday about three hours with elected officials around this region about what that, those four hours said we needed. And so financially, how do we fund where we're we going? So I'm trying to take this systematically with all the voices in the room, the people that know better, and then we come up with a better, better mousetrap. So you talked about the local and the uh, corporate response from the healthcare, but what about what the state can do? You know, Governor announced a, a cash infusion of more than $100 million for Grady, but what else can the state, I know one of the answers, but what beyond expanding Medicaid, and you can say that as well, yeah. but should the state do to help uh, relieve the burden? So here's something that's pretty cool. When I was in, when I was in D.C. last week, I think it was last week, this life is crazy now. Last week, <laughs> I was in Ossoff's office and we were talking, he was all about AMC. What are we gonna do, Mayor? What, what are you doing? Here's what I heard. He was so he's personally engaged in this? Oh my gosh, he's personally engaged in it. Warnock is personally engaged in it. They, you know, Warnock calls me every other week or so. Ossoff calls me every other, you know, every week or so. I mean, one is campaigning right now, so he can't do as much, but the other is really invested in it. And, and so I did what you just said, 
which is and and the state has been the governor you know uh, gave 130 million dollars to Grady to get 184 beds. He said the governor gave ARPA money, which is American Rescue Plan money that the Democrats passed. The Biden administration made that money available to states for this reason, and that was what we thought they would be using this money for two year, you know, a year and a half ago when we approved this money. He was like, so the governor just gave you the money we gave the governor. And I was like, all right, yes sir, Mr. Senator, <laughs> sir, you're right. From now on, I won't say the state gave us money, I'll make sure I add the whole context to it so that you see how decisions get made if you did not have Ossoff or Warnock or both, you would not have this American Rescue Plan money, which you would not have this $130 million that could then go uh, help Grady be able to get 184 beds. This all is connected. And so, yeah, as Ossoff would say, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a perfect segue to my next question about politics, because um, Ossoff and Warnock were both elected in 2021 in runoffs. So we now have a uh, gigantic election year upon us right now. Um, as a Democrat who's not up for election right now, how do you see um, the field, how do you see the engagement, especially among Democrats? Because Keisha Lance Bottoms at the end of last week said she is disappointed in what she's saying. She doesn't feel that same kind of um, excitement. She doesn't feel the same kind of engagement or urgency that she saw just last year among Democrats. What are you saying? Yeah, I actually just read that and, and, and saw that uh, she was saying that. I mean, you know, she has her own personal lens. I mean, she's going back and forth between D.C. And, and Atlanta to serve the federal government and work for President Biden. So maybe she's not seeing a lot of the activity on the ground um, and maybe it's not bubbling up. But I but I feel like, you know, we're you know, people are, are pumped up. They're excited. You know, the, the TV ads here are like crazy all day, every day. Uh, radio ads are crazy all day. Now, you know, pretty soon our mailbox is going to be uh, filled with everything and the text messages and all that. Uh, we're going to have to get out and get the ground game going, though. I mean, seriously, the door knocking, the uh, making sure people, all well-intentioned people actually don't get, you know, um, miss the appointments and, you know, go out of town on election day. You know, you got to get these people out to early voting. So then on election day, we're just grabbing everybody that, you know, hasn't voted yet. So I think... Um, you know, uh, Democrats are fired up. I think they know what's on the line. I think we know uh, that we um, have a chance to win this. Um, you know, it is crucial, um, as you heard what I just said about the American Rescue Plan money. It is crucial that Warnock um, is reelected from my lens. Uh, as the mayor of the city of Atlanta, think about all of the American Rescue Plan money, all of the infrastructure dollars that we've received right now is because we have two young, energetic senators along with a, a congresswoman uh, and a congress team that cares about Metro Atlanta. Those things are important to stabilize and make sure they get reelected. And then, of course, at the top of the ticket, the governor. This all matters, having a great relationship. Um, so getting out and voting and making sure people know that it's uh, voting time uh, because it's not presidential and we don't have a big bad guy to vote against um, that you know has made some people think it's not as um but I believe that um, you know people are gonna do what ne uh, they're, they're, uh, that's what's needed to be done let me ask you about polls because a number of the polls about your race not quite accurate. I think you were 17th in one of the polls. Yeah, um, <laughs> that was 4%, which, yeah, something crazy, yeah. It turns out. Um, 
but you know, we have a number of polls. The AJC actually had a plug. We have a, a poll coming out tomorrow on the top races, Senate, governor, all the statewide races, and a number of issues coming out in your paper tomorrow morning and online. Um, but a number of polls have showed Democrats in real trouble, with the exception of Senator Warnock, who's kind of neck and neck with Herschel Walker, um, who's a whole another story. Um, How? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll ask you about that too. I'm scared for the world. <laughs> Sorry. No. It's a podcast, so I'm going to have fun. Yeah, you're, you're actually, let's go there. I mean, Herschel Walker, do you expect to campaign with Senator Warnock? And, and answer that question you just asked. Why do you think Herschel is still neck and neck with some, someone like Senator Warnock? It's all about national politics. That's what that is about. They, they will put anybody that says they're a Republican that has a chance to, with name recognition, up against Warnock or anybody. It's just really about preserving national politics. To get one less vote, 49-51 changes everything. 50-50, you have Kamala Harris, who is the tiebreaker, changes everything. Um, and so that, it matters. And so if you have football is king in the South, and Herschel Walker played it, and did a good job playing football, and that's the end of where the good job that he's done goes. I mean, he hasn't proven himself in business, hasn't proven himself in civics, hasn't proven himself in, you know, in community, hasn't proven himself, of course, politically. And, there, you know, the ads are true that he really did, you know, um, you know, was a domestic violence basket case. So we can't reward that in a society that's trying to promote peace, uh, equality, you know, opportunity, and to have that be the tagline for Georgia, um, I, I, you know, it's unconscionable that a man that has, you know, that's been a pastor for decades, has a doctorate, uh, has been the most bipartisan, has been very bipartisan. Warnock has been very bipartisan in certain things, helpful, and you know, knowledgeable, good guy is in a is in a fight, a dog fight against somebody that we really wouldn't trust. A number of other business opportunities. Two, and the federal government is humongous decision making, and and we're gonna hand it. We're gonna be we're neck and neck. So, are yeah. you gonna hit the campaign trail, with Stacey Abrams, Senator Warnock, or do you have to kind of play it closer to the vest because you need to keep, uh, you know, closer ties with Republicans in the state house? Well, I pick and choose the events based on my calendar. To be honest, I mean, I I, I uh, I've been to like three or four events for Stacey and Warnock, um, and you know my. Team, so you know, I have a, uh, a campaign team, a squad of people that get things done. They are deployed, helping them in various ways. Um, and you know, whenever I'm needed to make a phone call to pump something up, or to find a funder, or uh, you know, something that's necessary to um, swing a consideration, then I do that. But I, I honestly don't, you know, have enough time to go down you know, get on the bus and go downstate and then come back up as, as readily as I would like to be able to have that flexibility. Right now, the city has a whole lot going on. AMC, you know, is 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 one of them to name a few. It, it's just, a, you know, I'm still hiring up my people. I got interviews like every other day for commissioners and things of that nature. So um, I'm, I'm in it. I'm in it. I'm, I'm vocal in it. We, we talk through strategy and things of that nature, but um, I haven't like, 
you know, going to Col- I actually did went to Columbus. I was about to say I haven't gone to Columbus. I went to Columbus with them. Um, <laughs> well, pick another place. I haven't gone to Augusta with them. Uh, but uh, at Metro Atlanta, you know, I've been around. Okay. Well, I know that we're going to have to let you go in just a little bit. But tell us what else we're going to see from you coming up. Whew. Well, um, you know, just trying to you know put, put old you know old problems at bay. Forest Cove, Thomasville Heights, those. Those uh, those horrible uh, apartments, making sure that those families got moved and now going to redevelop them. Um, more affordable housing, um, more you know, uh, a lot of the projects that we have related to the uh, infrastructure bond. We're now about to get our money to be able to do that from the bond, the actual financial products to be able to go out there and start doing the road paving and the uh, parks and stuff. Um, and you know, we're we're actually. Uh, doing a lot with um, training, you know, start trying to get upward mobility. Uh, there's two, tell of two cities, a city of a lot of prosperity and a city of a lot of poverty. And so I believe in the ability to train and upskill people. So you're going to see a lot from me and my connections with, you know, my former employer, TechBridge and Atlanta Technical College and a lot of these places to be able to get low income people skills to get great jobs, um, which is going to be important going into this recession, potential recession and what happened. You. So uh, a lot of things that are going to look like, um, you know, folks uh, improving their lives uh, from a development standpoint. We're going to start moving on Civic Center real soon. Um, uh, Bowen Homes uh, on the west side. Um, so you're going to see development that has a mission uh, to it with affordability as a as a as a requirement um, so that we don't have people displaced in our city. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, and, and oh, uh, I'll be uh, making some announcements about um, Senior Technology Advisor, which is a role that I'm bringing on to help us, you know, continue to capture all this tech uh, prowess that we have. We got Salesforce, Microsoft, Google, um, you know, you name it, NCR, and the list goes on. They're all bringing hubs here, but that's not the end of it. We have local startups that we have to continue to uh, find capital to invest in, to attract the VCs, to attract the talent, to retain the talent that's coming out of Georgia Tech, Georgia State, you know, AUC, and, and SCAD. And so, you're going to just see us. I'm trying to form an ecosystem. The blocking and tackling of, of trying to stop Buckhead City, that, you know, crime is down 12% in Buckhead. I hope they feel it. You know, we're working hard. There hasn't been an incident at Lenox in 10 months. There hasn't been a violent incident at Lenox or Phipps Plaza. And 1 million to 1.5 million people go into those malls every month. One to one and a half million people go into those malls every single month, and we have not had a violent incident at the, you know, that meaning a shooting, a rob, you know, a mugging, a, a, a carjacking, those kind of things. That it has not happened. Now we got a lot of you know police there. We got visibility, you know. So I guess I'm trying to articulate, you know, the blocking and tackling is is is, is you know I'm doing the operational excellence part. We're trying to get you know people you know through our process better. Uh, financials paid, all those kind of things, just doing the job. Now I'm going for the gusto. I'm going for the beloved community. I'm going for what tie, the, the ties that bind us, the thing that's bringing us together, the, the things that make us really, uh, we, you know, where even Atlantans will call us the best city in the, in the United States to live. You know, uh, half of y'all was like, mm, yeah, but mm, yeah. <laughs> 
I, I, you know, I, I saw you and you're like, I, I know we're good, but man, it's kind of like a pothole here or there. It's kind of, I got this hospital that just closed, you know. You know, I kind of, I see you, but I want you to believe it. I want you to feel it. And I want everybody to believe it and feel it. Mayor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Welcome back to the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community now, right now, by going to subscribe.ajc.com podcasts, and your first month of unlimited digital access is less than a dollar. It's just 99 cents. That subscribe that ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Is that any is that mantra anywhere here? No, we have live and we have press on, but you you always know what's really going on is our other spiel. So we like it. We do. We like it a lot. Um, I want to also say, as long as we're all here chatting, um, we all just miss Jim Galloway, who is here, who um, had been here in the room. Okay. Why yes. isn't Chief here? He was a previous, the chief political insider. Um, and if he's around, we should drag him back in. But anyway, I want to make sure that we said hello to Jim Galloway yes, as well. Yes, of course. I didn't see him yes. here at all from my <laughs> angle. Um, so we're thrilled to have open questions without my daughter or or your sister calling, which is great. <laughs> Although my twin sister is here in the audience, Emily, if you want to prank call us, now is your chance. <laughs> my husband, Todd, is here in the audience as well. So and my I'm... wife is with our two kids back at home. <laughs> so. Oh, Cheney, do we have the music too? Of course. This is scary to me. What, what do we think? We like it? Is it too, too who wants to be a millionaire? Or, yeah? It works. Oh, like it. it works. Okay. It works. Yeah, my first question, she said no. Oh. <laughs> End of the line, Glenda. <laughs> she gets the first question now. Now, Glenda has a question for you, Greg and Patricia. Hi, Glenda. Hi. Uh, my question is about the uh, Atlanta Medical Center. And two-part question. Do you know how it's zoned, and do you know who owns, physically owns the property? Greg. That's a good question. Um, so right now, and we have some AJC experts, J.D. Capilouto, our former City Hall reporter is here, so he might not be able to uh, supplement this answer. Um, but the, there's a moratorium on the development, right? Uh, the mayor has announced basically a stay in the development. Um, there is a worry that some big developer will come in and spend $3 billion and build a mixed-use place with all sorts of fancy condos. 
And so right now that's sort of delayed. Wellstar owns the property, right, JD, am I right? He says, I have no idea. Um, but Wellstar owns the property, as far as I know. Um, and there, it's a huge question for the, city, the future of the city of Atlanta, because it's prime real estate, right near the interstate, um, right near Beltline, right near very you know, well-traveled access of corridors. And we don't know what it's going to be. And the mayor, that's going to consume a, a big part of his, of, of his next year. Oh, there's Jim Galloway. Yeah. We wanted to say quick hello. Take a mic. Okay. Oh, would you like to join us? Yes. Well, uh, she said she said to come 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 sit come sit. So come, come sit. sit. Well, we just want to say a quick hello to you. We saw, I saw you out there. Uh, Jim, tell us what you're doing in your uh, in your retirement. I'm writing and researching. Uh, this is my friend Nicholas Wood here. He is he is from London. Um, he does political tours, and he's got one of Georgia on election week. So he so he takes he takes what uh, eight eight Brits eight maybe a couple Australians uh, uh, seven Brits and an Australian okay and we're going to be going from Orlando Jacksonville Brunswick Savannah Dublin to Atlanta I'm going to be a Georgia Sherpa nice that's they not quite retirement wisely, is it? yeah so good to see y'all I'm I've got I've got my JJ special waiting for me <laughs> you never know who you bump into at manuals. Next question, we have uh, Frank here. Uh, for begin with, I really enjoy the jolt and uh, read it every day. Thank but you. Thank my, you. My question is, I hear a lot about Trumpism, and assuming even if Donald Trump's not on the ballot, that they still we're still concerned about Trumpism. What is Trumpism aside from election denial? So I would say Trumpism, when you hear it referred to in the media, is um, just how very different uh, political motivations are when people are voting for Donald Trump. It doesn't seem to be aligned with any particular political philosophy necessarily because Donald Trump doesn't align with any particular political philosophy. Um, I think it has a lot to do also with the way Donald Trump uh, moves throughout the world, sort of sharp elbows, no consequences. Um, but the people who support Donald Trump see that as being honest and telling it like it is. And um, when we talk about Trumpism here in Georgia, I also think about it as the part of the portion of the Republican Party that until earlier this year, I really felt like was um, the dominant strain of the Republican Party. However, here in the May primaries, we saw that that really didn't seem to be the case, that Donald Trump ran primary opponents against Governor Brian Kemp, against Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. He made it what seemed to be his number one job to defeat both of those gentlemen and then a whole slate of candidates up and down the ticket and Georgia GOP voters just pretty much rejected the Donald Trump candidates um, almost entirely and by huge margins by 50 point margins 53 point margins Trumpism in Georgia has not been a success for Donald Trump I think ultimately Trumpism is tied to Donald Trump's future and his future here in the state I think is very much in question. Yeah, it's really interesting what happened in Georgia because we'd hear from voters, Republican voters, Trump supporters all the time who said, we love the former president, we love his brand, we love his agenda, but we're not listening to him when it comes to who to vote for in Georgia. And that's one of the reasons why you had Governor Kemp, Chris Carr, Insurance Commissioner John King, Brad Raffensperger win by such 
giant margins. We, we basically, you know, they humiliated their opponents. But the important thing, too, is they're not never Trumpers, right? These are not, Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor who didn't run for election, he's, a, he's more of a never Trumper. He's out there criticizing the former president. He's saying that the party should move in a different direction. Brian Kemp seems to have found that, that, um, that formula for running against Trump but not antagonizing him. You know, when I'd ask him, what do you make of, you know, Donald Trump just email, sent a blast email this morning calling you the worst person on, on, on the face of the earth, and he'd say, I'm not focused on what Donald Trump is saying. I'm just focused on fighting for Georgia, and if that means, um, you know, that means I, I pick up some more Republican supporters and Democratic supporters, so be it, right? He, he never antagonized or criticized the former president because he knew he wouldn't win that fight. Instead, he kind of built this model for other Republicans to move forward. I don't know if it can work in other states other than Georgia, but it worked at least in the primary for the governor winning by 52 points. Yeah, and in a bizarre way, Donald, him going up against Donald Trump made it possible for him to win that primary because there was a good bit of Democratic support that crossed over to vote for Brian Kemp, crossed over to vote for Brad Raffensperger because Donald Trump attacked them and they didn't change what they were doing. So he had this very strange effect of making them stronger in the end, which I don't think anybody predicted. Um, but just like Donald Trump himself, when you ask what is Trumpism, it really depends on who you're talking to. Shaney B. All right. We have some good questions out here. I know. I like that question. All right. Next up is Paul. Hey, Paul. Uh, in the last reconciliation bill, there was a big component of affordable housing. And at the last minute, that fell out. So the Democrats didn't do anything on the affordable housing question. Uh, I wonder whether you're hearing candidates today, anywhere throughout the state, talk about the importance of the affordable housing issue. The mayor clearly understands it, uh, that affordable housing is critical to Atlanta's balancing the uh, populations, the work capacity. So are any of the candidates talking about that? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Stacey Abrams. So usually affordable housing is not a statewide issue, right? You don't hear candidates talking about it. You don't hear bringing it up. Um, but Stacey Abrams has released a multi-page, I think it was a, a six or seven page policy document just on our affordable housing. And it caused a lot of um, kind of head scratching because again, you don't hear candidates for statewide office talking about issues like affordable housing. And it include components um, for certificates of livability. It included some components that was a direct result of our colleagues' reports in the Dangerous Dwelling series that if you haven't read, you need to read it um, because it was a multi-part series that has affected, already affected change, already helped reshape how uh, the city of Atlanta and how the state views affordable housing. But she took some ideas from that project and implemented it as a part of her policy package and I asked her, I said, this is not a topic that, that usually comes up, right? We're talking about you know, the economy. We talk about broader issues sometimes than, than, than affordable housing. Usually it's left up to local, uh, local officials. She said, look, it's, a, it's part and parcel for equity. It's part and parcel for her, her pitch for a more equitable economy. And it's tied to healthcare, it's tied to education. Affordable housing is at the root of everything. So that's, that's her kind of answer to that. Um, Governor Kemp has not pushed forward any sort of affordable housing issue. But frankly, he hasn't talked much about any policy items because I think, A, he's ahead in the polls and he doesn't feel like he needs to. Um, and when he does, you know, there are more modest proposals about education, about ta using the, uh, the state's budget surplus to fund tax refunds. But he hasn't gone deep into really any policy decisions beyond what those two issues are. 
Yeah, and Raphael Warnock was uh, born in Savannah, grew up in public housing. So he is somebody who lived the story of affordable housing, um, but in what he said uh, are now no longer really acceptable conditions for so many people who are in housing that's meant to be more affordable. Um, so he has an entire policy package. He was set to introduce it in October. Honestly, don't know if he's introduced it yet. It's not something that would get done this Congress, um, but it's something that he has uh, talked about quite a bit. He and John Ossoff also have worked on more targeted affordable housing, particularly for veterans, um, because they are both um, focused on, because Georgia has 13 military bases, they're focused on um, more uh, kind of personnel-related issues for those bases, including affordable housing for members of the military who, on their salaries, really cannot afford the cost of living at the bases where they're stationed. So that's something that they've both been focused on. But Warnock did an event last week in Savannah at Caton Homes, where he grew up, and they renamed the street Raphael Warnock Way. Um, so it, he's very much in touch with his old neighborhood, goes there um, frequently, and um, it's certainly something that he is currently working on with his legislative staff. So um, those you'll notice those were all Democrats. Do I hear about it from Republicans? I do not. So <laughs> that is, uh, if I had to pick a theme on who we're hearing about it from, it's uh, definitely the two senators and Stacey Abrams. Um, it's something that we don't hear in congressional races as much. Um, these are races that are um, really not that competitive, to be honest with you. Only have one competitive um, house race right now down in the second district. Um, other than that, these are races that are really run on the edges, I would say, and, and many unopposed also because they're not even particularly competitive races because of the way that those districts have been redrawn. Next up on our live listener mailbag is Brad. Hey, Brad. Hey guys, thanks hey for uh, being here and for inviting us. This is awesome. Um, so I too am a big giant fan of the jolt uh, and the energy, Patricia and Greg, that you guys bring both to the paper and to the city. And it is really important for uh, an informed electorate to have a vibrant and vital newspaper that does all of the local reporting and shares with us all this stuff. And so my question to you is sort of a metaphysical question. What does the paper look like in five years? Because I'm concerned. Well, um, it's going to include me if I have. <laughs> our, our editor in chief, Kevin Riley, is in the back just waving yes. at us saying good Send luck the with hard these questions. Answers. Kevin, come on up, man. <laughs> Send the hard questions back there. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you, I'll be at the paper in five years if, it, if I have any choice Ditto. about it. Um, I'm sure Greg will be here in five years. Um, oh, here comes Kevin Riley and now. Is, there he is. <laughs> Kevin, would you like to take the third chair? I thought the I chief was chair. Going to be able to hang out. Yes, this is called the hot seat over yeah. here. Yeah, great. So I, I can't tell you, you know, predict uh, with authority uh, where we'll be in five years, but here's how I, I would like you to think about it. Um, our business is in a, the media business in a huge transition, especially in the newspaper industry. And when you look at uh, the realities that we face, I would I would say think about how you bank now versus the way you banked 10 years ago. You know, um, it was an industry that just had to go all digital. And if you, most of you who are banking digitally now have probably not been in a bank branch in years, and it was a very tough transition because it's your money, you know, and you wanna see it and feel it. So if you look at what we're doing, you could argue that in the digital age, it's not making a ton of sense anymore to manufacture a physical paper product 
and then try to deliver hundreds of thousands of those to doorsteps or driveways across Metro Atlanta. It's expensive, it's inefficient, and we have a couple other problems uh, within the economy that we're up against, right? First of all, it's virtually impossible to hire people to do it. If anybody here wants to work from midnight till four in the morning, <laughs> I'll see you afterwards. But that's a reality. Gas prices play into that because the po folks who do that work who have to drive around to do it, it's expensive. And then another weird thing that's happened that we didn't expect is Russia produces 10% of the world's newsprint or so. And so the actual paper we print on is getting harder to come by. And there are also some, as you might imagine, sustainability reasons for that too. So here's what I want you to be ready for. We're gonna convert to a pretty much, at some point, all digital news operation. And if we need you, if you are serious, and I hope you are, and I hope all of you are, this community needs a serious, fact-based journalism organization to, form, to inform our citizens, to hold our leaders accountable. We are going to be that organization. And we need your help. We want you to press on with us. And here's how you should do it. Subscribe digitally. We will probably get to a point pretty soon where it won't, won't make sense to print and deliver the paper during the week, but instead only on Sunday, and we will deliver all our news digitally during the week. And if you haven't tried our e-paper and you haven't, you're not a subscriber to The Jolt, you're not listening to these podcasts, you're missing out. You're, you're not really getting everything we can. Those of you who use our e-paper, we will have, I think, eight pages on the Braves game tomorrow. We can't do that in the physical paper. There's limitations on the press, limitations on deadlines. But in five years, we will be here. And we will be doing the same kind of work with really great journalists making politicians perform for the citizens of the state. Our Kevin cameo. And I, and I look, I can tell you from the grunt level, from the ground level per, um, perspective, that we reporters know that we need to find new ways to reach our audiences, whether it be podcasts. We have Tamar Hallerman here, who's the co-host of the Breakdown Podcast, which is award-winning. We have Maya Prabhu here, who's gone on Twitter spaces to, to answer questions about the Roe v. Wade ruling, the Dobbs decision earlier this year, and done all sorts of other ways to reach out to us. Because we know everyone, in the, you know, all of our listeners and readers and, 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 and viewers aren't going to read the newspaper. We have to find new ways to reach out to you, and we're, we're committed to do that. One of those is also the Politically Georgia podcast. This is a relatively uh, new commitment with Shaney B, who has come in and professionalized the operation for us. Um, and also, if you're not subscribers to The Jolt, um, I can tell you that Greg is in the Google Doc until late at night, sometimes... One-ish. One-ish. I'll pick it up about 3.30-ish <laughs> in the morning. Um, and then we'll get it, to your new, get it to your inbox by about 7.30 now. Like, we have really tried to turn into morning people to make this happen for y'all. Um, because now we go into the Capitol, the state Capitol, and they are already gossiping about what we just told them. And they're like, what? I'm like, I know. <laughs> you wrote it. So, I mean, so we are, we are committed to be here. We will be here in five years. We will be here in 10 years. If we all still have jobs, which I know we will, um, we're going to be here, um, and we will we will hire some pigeons to bring it to you if we have to. We don't, we don't really care how you get it as long as you get it. Holograms. Yeah. Shane, In this on-demand age, it, you know, digital is where it's at, and it's a pleasure to work with both of you, Greg and Patricia, on the Politically Georgia podcast. And you know, 
we, we release podcasts every Wednesday and Friday, but we also release podcasts whenever there's big breaking news. In fact, we're going to do a special edition on the poll that is you know uh, that? coming out. Yes, I did know that. <laughs> Patricia, your phone will be ringing. Uh, we're also going to be covering the, uh, the debates, the upcoming debates. So we will turn those around. Uh, immediately. So uh, if you're not a subscriber to the Politically Georgia podcast, Apple, Spotify, or any platform where you like to listen to podcasts. All right, that's my spiel. That's it. Next is Phil. Hey, Phil. Hello. I wanted to thank the AJC for what they've done with Axios and other by getting those on. We need that. But my question is, what's the over-under on Walker showing up on Friday? <laughs> He's got, I, I would bet the house on him showing up. I really would. He said it again today. We were both out in Carrollton. We, we literally just drove here from Carrollton, and we were worried we wouldn't make it. Um, but uh, he brought it up himself. He's going to be at the debate. Um, I would not bet anything on him showing up to the Sunday debate, which he still hasn't formally refused yet, the Atlanta Press Club debate on Sunday. But I've talked to people close to him. Um, yes, Phil? Have they told you the subjects yet? No, no. We will, um, not, we will not be told the subject, and he will not be told the subject. They took no. that out. Yeah, yeah. So Phil's talking about the original Next Star contract called for, um, uh, it basically told the different candidates that the subjects, the topics of the debate would be included. Um, from what I understand um, from senior officials was that neither of the candidates asked for that. That was a part of the, the standard boilerplate agreement that Next Star gives to candidates. And because, frankly, we know what the subjects are going to be. The economy, jobs, abortion, guns, whatever, right? It's not going to be too hard to divine the, the broader subjects. So Herschel's camp basically said, we don't need, you know, they, they agreed to Warnock's condition that, that the subjects not be made in advance. I know we will be going down to Savannah a day early Thursday. This debate is going to be presidential level attention. Um, there's something more than 60 reporters from out of state will be there. They're selling us, act, uh, basically renting uh, tables, and, and I'm not kidding. You know, it's $300 to $400 that, that your AJC subscriptions are paying for so we can have a table in the room um, down in Savannah. Uh, but this is going to be an epic, epic event that will, that will draw all sorts of attention. It won't be like the runoff debates where it was simulcast on CNN and MSNBC because this is a next star property, but it will be, clips of it will be watched by millions of people. Yeah, and I think Herschel Walker's team knows that there are risks associated, of course, with doing a live debate, with doing anything live. Um, however, the greater risk is not to do it. Herschel Walker has still not closed the deal with all Republican voters here in this state. It may feel like he has, but he hasn't. And internal Republican research is telling um, telling Republicans here in the state that while Republicans are actually not too worried about his background, they're not so worried about um, the fact that uh, Democrats have been running lots of ads about with um, with uh, details from his ex-wife about him holding a gun to her head, holding razors to her throat. They're okay with that. What they need to see from him is that they're capable, that he's capable of doing the job. He has not met the bar with all Republican voters or independents on competence. Can he 
be a U.S. senator? Can he be in that job with a level of competence that they're satisfied with? So he needs to show them more. He needs to be on a debate stage against Raphael Warnock. So the, there are risks with doing it, but there are more risks for not doing it. And so I think that's why we both believe he's going to be there. And right now, Governor Kemp, he's trying to expand his political map. He's reaching out in the suburbs he's, because he's ahead in the polls. Herschel Walker, his main audience right now are conservative Republicans who are wavering. Um, there's three, I like to say there's kind of three broad buckets of Republicans when it comes to Herschel. There's the group that doesn't believe any of these reports. They think it's all fake news. Um, I talked to one of those voters who said, I only watch Fox News, I don't even know what you're talking about because they, they haven't even covered it. There's the group that believes it but thinks that Senate control is more important. That's sort of the same group that held their nose and voted for Donald Trump because they, they wanted his conservative agenda, they, they liked his judicial picks, whatever it might be. And then there's that slimmer but still significant group of Republican voters who just can't vote for Herschel Walker. And the, the size of that group will determine whether or not there's a runoff and will determine whether or not Senator Warnock wins re-election outright in November. Um, because I can tell you the poll, just as another tease, the poll that we have coming out tomorrow shows that gap has grown even bigger since our last poll in September. Um, and I'll give one uh, quick story about a voter that I talked to at that um, Herschel Walker event earlier today. Um, I, after um, Senator Rick Scott was in Carrollton today vouching for uh, Herschel Walker, so was Senator Tom Cotton. They're both um, present themselves as conservatives to their own states, and they were out there saying that this race is um, not about the past, it's about the future of the Senate. And so when all of these um, very enthusiastic Herschel Walker fans were walking out, I stopped one gentleman and said, what do you, do you think about what you heard from the senators? And so they were like, yeah, it was, it was pretty good, it was pretty good. I said, what do, you, do you even believe what you've heard about Herschel Walker? And he said, listen, we've got two center, centers to choose from I'm going with the one whose record I want to vote for. Who's going to vote the way I want them to vote in the Senate? And so that was the, that's, um, that's, that was his reaction, his response, and I think that's fairly wide held in the Republican Party. Where'd Cheney B go? I uh, pulled oh, up a chair at a table, oh. made some new friends. <laughs> I was looking all over. And uh, one of the new friends that I met is uh, Peter. Hi, Peter. Hi. I'm a big fan. Um, my question is concerning the recent trend of authoritarian tactics that we've seen in Georgia candidates and public officials. Uh, Georgia voters seem to have largely moved on from Trumpism and other tactics employed by authoritarians across the globe, but there are still candidates that seem to be holding on to some vestiges of that uh, and likely may be elected. How do you see the future of governance in Georgia in light of these issues? Do you have anyone in particular in uh, mind? Are you, Actually, are you thinking about the LG race, or are you yeah. thinking about? I work for a C3, so I'm going to keep it C3. Okay. Uh. <laughs> okay, well, with that amount of information, <laughs> I'll tell you um, that here in the state, uh, I mean, the state government is... Um, is uh, pretty democratic. I mean, I have to say that there are lots of voices uh, for whichever party is in the majority. Let me put it that way. Um, I mean, there are lots of different centers of power. There is um, House Speaker David Ralston. There is whoever is going to be in charge of the Senate, the state Senate, uh, Governor Brian Kemp. But none of, none of the three of those groups seem to maintain total control of what's going on. Um, I have, these, these have been my first two years to cover the state legislature. I have been covering Washington 
mentioned before. And um, in Washington, Congress has gotten so predictable, it is so calcified, that to come back to the state and see um, something that was so unpredictable, you didn't know what direction things were going. You, you would wake up on a Monday and not know what who would be in charge by Tuesday. It was just the level of craziness at the state capitol to me is has been really disorienting. And when I say craziness, I just mean um, you don't know which way things are going to go. And so much of it is based on personalities. Um, but it also means that no one person has the final say on anything at the state capitol. And the reason I, I said it, you asked if you were talking about the LG race, not because I think Burt Jones is authoritarianism, but he is the, other than Herschel Walker, he is the candidate most aligned with Donald Trump, right? His Trump's endorsement, he was a, a famously a fake elector. Um, you've also seen him, I wouldn't say moderate his, his tone at all, um, but he has tried to appeal to a slightly broader audience uh, and move away. Uh, let me put it this way. I haven't talked to a single Republican on the record or behind the scenes who's actively trying to get Donald Trump to rally here. You know, and we reported uh, a few weeks ago that Trump's folks were in discussions for a rally. They would have been Saturday, right after the debate, when all these national media were down here. Perfect timing, right, somewhere in South Georgia. And I got a call a few days, well, maybe a week ago, essentially saying, hey, um, those talks are kind of off the rails right now because folks aligned with Herschel Walker, Burt Jones, and other senior Republicans um, made it very clear to the Trump camp that he would do more harm than good here in Georgia. So you're, you're not seeing that same strand um, that you're seeing in other battleground states. Um, you know, for instance, Brad Raffensperger, you know, the, uh, the, the, the sort of antidote to the election deniers, the guy who on that famous phone call said no to Donald Trump. Um, there's plenty of other reasons Democrats don't like him, but tens of thousands of Democrats did cross over and vote for him over Jody Heiss. If Jody Heiss had won that race, won the nomination, we'd be in the thick of, of a, a whole range of other stories about how a literal election denier who said he wouldn't have certified, he wouldn't have pushed to certify the election results, was gonna, was, could be on the verge of taking power in Georgia. And that just isn't happening right now. Yeah, I, want, I will say one Georgian to keep an eye on is Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman up in the 14th Congressional District. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene has uh, become almost like a right-hand woman to Donald Trump. She is the one who is introducing him at Trump events around the country. Um, when she introduces him, she introduces him as my president, Donald Trump and uh, goes uh, a large part of her introduction of Donald Trump is y'all, that race was stolen, we all know it. And the cheers from those crowds are immense. And she is a celebrity on the level that is really hard to wrap your head around when you see her from Atlanta and think of her as somebody who's uh, you know kind of up in Rome and making some headlines. She's really at a different level of political ce celebrity with the Trump world and um, because of that, she has been the second highest fundraiser for House Republicans anywhere in the country, and that is second only to um, uh, Kevin McCarthy, who's the GOP leader. She absolutely hoovers up money. She doesn't need it for re-election. She's going to win that race, no matter what her Democratic <laughs> opponent says. I mean, it has been redrawn as a very Republican uh, district, which it was in the first place. So she will be in the next Congress, unless something extremely unexpected happens. Um, and she, because of her level of, um, of notoriety and adoration in Trump world, she will have a very strong voice in the next Congress if Republicans take the GOP majority. When we saw Kevin McCarthy laying out the House Republicans' vision for the future, 
Marjorie Taylor Greene was directly over his right shoulder. She is a part of the world up there now, so she may not have had any committee assignments, but she has immense influence, and it is only growing louder and larger. Yeah, and by the way, it was no accident she was right behind Kevin McCarthy. That was very strategic to show that the House Republican Caucus is aligned with her brand of politics. Shaney B? All right, the time's getting away from us, so we'll, we got time for a couple more Two questions more. real quick here. And this is Anthony. Yes. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, so my question was about the governor's race. Uh, Brian Kemp, of course, is running on his record, a conservative record here in Georgia, and Stacey Abrams is running for a progressive alternative. Uh, it seems like, and I think y'all's reporting has kind of showed that his message is landing and hers is not. So I'm just curious, uh, given where we are in the campaign, from what y'all are hearing from constituents, from political operatives, et cetera, why do you think his message is uh, ringing out and hers is not? Yeah, that is the big question, uh, the great question. That is the big question of, uh, one of the big questions of the 2022 race because our last poll showed Stacey Abrams back by eight. It's not an anomaly. We've seen a number of polls that show Stacey Abrams uh, with a significant deficit against Governor Kemp, um, five, six, seven, eight points. Um, one of the reasons why I think is um, a she's not the you know the the new kid on the block. Um, Senator Warnock, in a, in a sense, is is uh, is a newer national figure than Stacey Abrams is. She's still an elite fundraiser. She's still got soaring name recognition, but that comes with a detriment too. Since 2016, every Republican running for dog catcher in Thomas County has campaigned against Stacey Abrams. She's become this this villain for the state GOP, and it's driven up her negative numbers, even among some independents. And that's been an issue. We've talked and written a lot about an issue that Stacey Abrams has acknowledged and has tried to combat, which is softer support among the most important Democratic constituency, black voters. Um, our last poll showed her at 80% among black voters. That sounds like a big number, but she needs to be at 90, 95, and she knows it. Um, and they're confident they can get there. The worry for her, the concern for her is can you also get a, a, a surge in turnout among African-American voters? And that's why she's having events um, targeting voters of color. I was with her in Gwinnett on Friday uh, at an event with AAPI. She's had a number of events. I think she was with Steve Harvey this past weekend trying to appeal to black men in particular because they tend to vote at sharply lower proportions as black women, as white men, and as white women. Yeah, I think also a lot of it has to do with um, Governor Brian Kemp's role as an incumbent running on a record that he's really, really pleased with. So he has been able to say um, that we have the state's lowest unemployment rate in history, which is accurate that AJC reported that. Um, he's been able to say that we have the country's lowest gas prices, which is also accurate because he has um, lifted the state tax on gas. He has been able to deliver a number of things through the legislature that that he has been able to roll out either to conservative groups or to uh, more moderate independent groups, a $5,000 teacher pay raise and across the board pay raise for law enforcement. He's been able to look forward to an election and use the levers of power to make things happen that he knew were going to be helpful to him um, during a re-election, particularly if, if it was against Stacey Abrams. So he was able to forecast that and then deliver that, um, largely because he had a legislature that was willing to do most of the things that he wanted. I do also think that his feud with Donald Trump has has really changed his brand here in the state for a lot of voters. He has seen a sort of an independent brand and not a Trump 
toady, basically. When he was running for election the first time, he was being accused of being a uh, of suppressing votes, as being the Secretary of State who didn't have um, the ethics to take himself out of the race that he was also going to be judging. Um, and because of Donald Trump, he's the man who stood up for Georgia's election system against the president of his own party, who was telling him not to do that. So I think that he's been able to weather a number of crises and then roll these out with a, with a campaign team that is actually quite disciplined to say, oh, look at all of these things that we can do for you. And it's, it, that, is, that would be hard for any Democratic candidate to go up against. And I think that Stacey Abrams has, um, has done as well as any Democratic candidate could have done. And listen, the Abrams campaign believes that there is a large number of voters who are not being picked up in these polls, that they're going to be voting on the abortion issue, that they're going to be motivated. They're unlikely voters, so they're not picked up in these likely voter models. Um, and that's what they're really banking on. So they don't they don't think that this is how it's going to turn out, but it's it is what the polls are telling us right now. And by way of explanation about that, most polls, including ours, they weight the female, the women turnout at 55%, right? But Stacey's campaign says, with Dobbs, what if it's 58% female? Like, what, what if it's closer to 60%? All bets are off. And that's why, and we've said this on the show, and, and this is how we're looking at as, as reporting it, he, she is behind, even in internal polls, even in the sunniest polls um, from Democrats, she's behind Governor Kemp. But you can never count uh, any Democrat out, but particularly Stacey Abrams, in a political environment like this one. Cheney B., this is our last question, so no pressure. Make it <laughs> no good. pressure. Take oh, us out on a high Melita. note here, Melita. Okay. My question is, because there are millions and millions being spent on television ads, in your judgment, what is the most effective positive ad and the most effective negative ad that you've seen this cycle? That's a, that's a good one. I'll take the most effective negative ad because it's what Republicans have told me that they think is the most effective negative ad. And it's against Herschel Walker and it's using video of his ex-wife describing the abuse that she suffered um, living with him and being married to him. And I have heard from a number of Republican um, operatives around the state who um, were worried about that ad before the last week of news headlines. They said that ad is really landing and I'm worried. Okay, so for positive ads, I'll, I'll point to a series of them. Um, Raphael Warnock has a great ad smith, and everyone, Republicans, Democrats, they all marvel at how good of a job that campaign did in 2020 with the famous Alvin the Beagle ads, um, with the, you know, they're gonna attack me for eating pizza with a fork and stepping on cracks. And this year, you're seeing, you haven't seen Alvin the Beagle quite yet, but you are seeing that same brand of advertisement um, that is humanizing Raphael Warnock, and even Republicans say, look, we can't call him. You're, you're not hearing Republicans say radical, liberal, radical socialist, like, as, like they did in 2020, because those ads were so effective at portraying Senator Warnock as, a, as kind of a regular guy, not this foreign extremist that Republicans tried to make him out to be two years ago. So instead, the main attack is they can't call him a bad guy, so instead they're saying, He's a nice guy, but he votes with Biden too much. He votes 96% of the time with Biden. So that series of ads has been so effective, it's, it's forced Republicans to change their entire strategy of how to defeat Senator Warnock. I think that's it, folks. Thank you so much for coming. That's going to do it for this episode of Politically Georgia Podcast. We so appreciate all of you listening. Every Wednesday and every Friday or whenever news breaks, 
and a big thanks to our fantastic audience. You guys, thank you so much for showing up. And special thanks to Manuel's Tavern for having us. We will see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,